Can you guys hear me pretty well? Is this mic working okay? It moves around a little bit as part of the problem. Um, as long as you don't get like nose blows too like... <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Slavic Connection listeners. Amor mende. Bi Katya It's Katya. On this episode, I speak with Dr. Katherine Graber, an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at Indiana University, Bloomington. Dr. Graber has worked in Buryatia and surrounding Buryat territories since 2005, conducting research on language and media, particularly the function of media in indigenous language shift, endangerment, and revitalization. We usually think of intergenerational transmission as like a one-time acquisition. You know, has the language been passed from this nasitil, this like carrier of the language who's a grandmother to her children, and has it been passed from their children, or is it being passed straight from the grandmother to the grandchildren? Her new book, Mixed Messages, Mediating Native Belonging, in Asian Russia delves into media and language as practices through which the region's inhabitants perform and negotiate their citizenship and sense of belonging every day and on different levels. Dr. Graber is also co-editor of Storytelling as Narrative Practice, published in 2019. I hope you enjoy this episode. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Graber, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I am a really big fan of your works. I've read all your articles and I just wanted you to tell our audience a little bit about yourself and specifically how you ended up doing research in Briatia. Ah, okay. Those are two really different questions because the first one is like, what is my institutional position? I am I'm an assistant professor of anthropology and Central Eurasian Studies at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. The second question, though, is like this personal journey, right? The short version of how I ended up in Buryatia is that one thing really led to another, and it's a, it was a sort of series of random events. I did not have any particular interest in Slavic stuff or in Russia when I was a teenager. I grew up in a small town in Missouri. I think my sort of experience of the Slavic world for your Slavic Connection fans, I'll bet you have a lot of Slavophiles who listen to this who listen to this podcast. Um, yeah, I have to admit that I was not a Slavophile, <laughs> um, but maybe that made it easier. Maybe that made it easier and more likely that I would get really interested in the non-Slavic, non-Russian peoples of Russia, actually. I think my interest or my my knowledge of or experience of Russia and Eastern Europe came down to like having my family having hosted a Bulgarian exchange student for dinner a couple of times and going to like see a Russian folk concert in a church. I think that was it. <laughs> so when I went to college, I really wanted to be a geophysical sciences major. I was interested in planetary science and geology. But to fulfill my language requirement, I took a class in Czech, really on a whim, because it was a small class. But the instructor of that course was a graduate student and he was a linguist and he got me really interested in linguistics, which I didn't know even you know existed as a sort of thing that you could do. So at the same moment that I was learning that I did not like lab work and my chemistry labs were making me want to stab my eyes out, <laughs> I was learning about linguistics and how and how this uh, there was this whole field um, that I just didn't, hadn't known existed. So I thought that I would study African languages. I was really interested in Africa. I studied abroad in South Africa in addition to the Czech Republic and Russia when I was an undergrad. And the reason was that I was really interested in multilingualism, especially in radical multilingualism, like when people are right alongside one another are, are speaking you know, several different languages. Now we call that super diversity sometimes, especially as exist in urban spaces where there's been a lot of migration recently. But the, I, I thought that multilingualism was something that would be 
most easily studied in African contexts. And I wasn't thinking, it wasn't even on my radar that Russia would be a multilingual space, honestly. And it's, it's going to sound really naive, actually, but the first time I was in Russia was in 2001. And I was there with a Russian folk choir that I had joined in Chicago. Golasa, I totally recommend them. Oh. <laughs> they're still around. They're great. And they're actually considerably more serious than a kind of like wacky <laughs> folk choir sounds like. So we were on like an ethnomusicological expedition to find new songs and learn from Semyeski singers in the Lake Baikal region. And I had never been to Siberia. I'd never been to, I mean, it's my first time in Russia. Because it never occurred to me that it would be like a multilingual space. It, it never occurred to me that it'd be multiracial and multiethnic either, actually. In retrospect, I think like, gosh, like how could how could that be the so overwhelmingly the image of Russia when it is so wrong? Like that is so not the case, you know, obviously. But it it was not obvious to me at the time. Like I had somehow learned I'd somehow studied Russian for like three years and not kind of gotten that message at all. So one of the choir members, Semyski are sometimes called the old believers, and they are well known for having a very rich oral history and a very rich uh, singing tradition. There's also quite a lot of uh, sort of ethno-tourism around Semyski um, practices and the old believers. They speak a pretty crazy and awesome variety of Russian that's closer to Polish and West Slavic. But one of the choir members was married to a Buryat woman, and she knew a little bit of Buryat. And this just blew my mind. Like, I was like, what are you talking about? Like the Buryats. What are you talking about? Like, we're in the Republic of Buryatia. What are you like, what? <laughs> so like a good college student, when I went back to my university, it was at the University of Chicago, I went to the library and tried to find something about Buryatia. And what I found in English was only the work of Caroline Humphrey, Buryatologist, as mm -hmm. you usually say, and like Buryatolog. It was really only her work. And although there's a lot of it, and she's a wonderful scholar, I was really surprised to not find anything in English about Buryat as a language or sociolinguistics. And it kind of stuck with me that this was a major kind of gap, a, a, a sort of blank space on the map. And I went to my you know, college professors and they really couldn't tell me much of anything about Russia east of the Urals. Like they're just, they just didn't know, understandably given the Cold War, but it extends beyond the Cold War, right? Over the years, I've realized like it's also the case that people in Moscow and St. Petersburg, Russians in Moscow and St. Petersburg aren't very aware of what goes on. Absolutely. In parts of the country. I mean, I had, I had to argue with a museum worker once who saw my, give her my student visa to ask for a student admission to a museum in St. Petersburg. And she was like, oh, Dievoshko, it's the Ulan Ude, it's the Mongoli. And I was like, I'm sorry, Ulan Ude is not in Mongolia. <laughs> So, you know, it's not, it's not just Americans. <laughs> yeah, they, they come by it honestly in some ways, um, that sort of that sort of lack of knowledge. But it stuck with me. So, so when I went to graduate school, I didn't, I didn't know whether a project in Buryatia would work out, but I, I was hopeful that it would. Mm -hmm. And the first time that I went to do research in 2005, I thought of it as like pre-dissertation research where I was just going to ask people whether, whether they'd be interested in having an, an outsider work on something. And I met some wonderful linguists who introduced me to the sort of local Buryat literature, which is significant on bilingualism. There's quite a lot of sociolinguistic work done in schools. And sort of I learned quite quickly that nobody was working on language and mass media and, and that that was an incredibly important, like really central issue for um, Buryat language revitalization and what I was observing. And so, you know, sometimes it's helpful to be the outsider so that you can say like, there's this really central thing that no one's really paying attention to, maybe because you're so close to it that you don't see it. Like that's sort of the, the main insight that anthropologists can bring by being professional strangers.
So you went to Briatia without any kind of just idea of what you wanted to do for research, but it really developed while you were there. It developed very much in consultation with people, especially with local scholars who, who had, again, already done a lot of work. And I mean, I think that this is something that we really need to do better about in American scholarship is like taking seriously our Russian colleagues. A lot of times what happens, especially in parts of Siberia, like Sakha Republic is like this too, and like Buryatia, there's really robust regional literature, but a re- regional scholarship, but it, it kind of gets stuck in Krajevidienia, like it gets stuck in as regional studies, as opposed to being part of a kind of comparative and cross-regional framework in which people can c- compare their experiences. And that's partly for political reasons. It's also for, for the sort of historical reasons of um, the way that regional studies has developed in Russia. Yeah, so I didn't, I wasn't, I really didn't know whether I was going to be, I wanted to be open. I mean, if everyone was just going to be like, no, we're not talking to you. I, mean, I take that mm-hmm. seriously. It's not, I wanted to do something that was community, community um, helpful, if not community driven, at least helpful to the community too, to communities. I should say that's not like there's one Boyette community. So I didn't, I wasn't sure whether that was going to work. And I also wasn't sure whether, you know, a lot of people have told me over the years, like, there is no way as an American, you are going to show up and get to work in Russian media institutions. Like, what are you going to do? Like, are you just going to like knock on the door <laughs> and be like, haha, I want to come in? And like, they laugh, like a lot of people laughed, especially Russian historian or American historians and political scientists who had tried and failed to get places like this, right? I mean, it's true that I, that, that I was sometimes thought to be a spy. But if you're really upfront all the time about who you are and what you're doing there and extremely transparent, as transparent as you can be, most of the time, people aren't going to like suspect you because they can see that you have good intentions. So I've never really been told, I've been told no before, but not in like any really significant or substantial ways. <laughs> Similarly for funding, I mean, so many people are just thrilled that anyone wants to do any work in not Moscow or St. Petersburg. It was never a difficulty getting funding. I mean, that's still the case now. I mean, we have more funding than we can give to graduate students to work in parts of uh, parts of Russia east of Moscow and St. Petersburg, what I call Asian Russia. So to return back to when you initially went to Buryatia, you write about how your first impression was that the case of the Buryat language was an amazing example of language maintenance, but you quickly realized that that wasn't exactly the case. So for people who might not be familiar with the current condition or the previous conditions of the Buryat language, how has it developed a short history of the Buryat language, if you will. I know that's a lot to ask. <laughs> well, <laughs> in 1455, <laughs> because I was interested in multilingualism, I really thought of Buryat as this amazing example of language maintenance, meaning that how could in the face of like 400 years of contact with Russian, meaning contact between the Buryat language and the Russian language, but also, more importantly, contact between speakers of Russian and speakers of Buryat. How is it possible that when Russian has been so overwhelmingly the code of power, like, you know, we talk about codes in linguistics and linguistic anthropology, what we have in mind is like a language variety or a language that is opposed to other language varieties or languages by speakers themselves as discrete entities. Like, so how is it possible that code of power could have been so overwhelmingly Russian and yet people were still speaking Boya in really large numbers? So when I started my research in 2005, there were three hundred, almost 400,000 speakers of Boya across Russia, Mongolia, and the People's Republic of China. 
now they're about 300, 326,516. No. <laughs> they're, they're based on based on the most current census data, there are about 326,500 speakers across Russia, Mongolia, and China. But most of those speakers are in Boryat territories in, in Russia. So there are some in Moscow and St. Petersburg. There's 60,000 or so across northern Mongolia, especially in the Shinhekin region of the inner Mongo- of Inner Mongolia in the People's Republic of China. But most speakers of Buryat are in the Buryat territories. That is the Republic of Buryatia and these two neighboring, not quite connected Buryat territories that have been merged with, according to the terminology used in within Russia, merged with the surrounding Russian-dominated oblasts and to become a bigger Zabaykolsky Krai and Irkutsk. But they're still considered, they're still thought of by Buryats as Buryat territory, and they're still, Buryats in those places still have what's called a Sobi status or like special, yeah, which is it's part of this puzzle too, is that that's, that's part of what's happened over the over the years of my research too. I mean, I've been working there for 15 years, like a lot of a lot of things have changed. And what has what been a story, it's been a story of federal recentralization of the erosion of the principle of ethno-national autonomy, for better or worse, depending on who you're talking to. And in, in light of that, there's been really st- really steep language attrition, language shift from people speaking mostly Boryat to speaking mostly Russian. So whereas I thought, you know, I was emphasizing the sort of amazingness of this language maintenance and thinking of it as a case of unlikely language survival. In fact, what's happened over those 15 years that I've been studying is another, yet another period, much like the 1960s, of like really, really steep um, language loss language attrition movement, or you could say language shift movement from speaking primarily Boryat is speaking primarily Russian. And just a quick question. When you talk about uh, census numbers, about speakers of Boryat, does that account for different levels of, of speaking? So say, for example, semi-speakers, heritage speakers, or do are people just free to identify as they wish? That is, so that is a really, really good question. So short answer is that it has changed over the years. So in the 2010 census, the Russian Census Bureau very helpfully started to distinguish between radnoyazik, your native language, and znania, like your your knowledge or your control. Like, and so they started to ask, like, which like languages do you vladyate? Like, which one? Which languages do you control? As opposed, and, and so we're asking about knowledge as opposed to native language. Mm-hmm. So part of the census data is really hard to use for that reason because a lot of Buryats will identify as their native language as Buryat because they are they identify themselves as ethnically Buryat or as like nationally Buryat. So they'll identify their native language, Radnoyazik, as Buryat, without having any Znania, without having any knowledge or like active control of Boryat. That's a fascinating phenomenon for linguists and people who work on language outside of the former Soviet Union, because it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like this, this idea of thinking of your native language as being not the language that you were speaking before the age of about five. So linguists have a, a sort of definition of your native language as being a language that you control when you're really, really young at home, probably like before the age of about five. What do people in post-Soviet societies mean when they talk about radnoyazik, or native language? They mean like the language of your rod, like of your of your birth, the language that it's like a heritage language from uh, an English speaker's perspective, like a heritage language or an ancestral language. So the census data is hard to use before the questions were separated into knowledge or vladiate and control on the one hand and radnoyazik or native language, because you just had massive numbers of people who were identifying themselves as having this native language and owning it and feeling connected to it, but not controlling it in any way. 
I mean, by the same token, there are quite a lot of people who know a little bit of Buryat, but don't identify, or even a lot of Buryat, or even are pretty good speakers of Buryat, but don't identify themselves as Nasitili, as the carriers of the language, and don't identify Buryat as their native language on census forms because they're not ethnically Buryat. So on the 326,500 number includes a bunch of people who there were 206,000 in Russia who reported themselves as ethnic Buryats who reported knowledge. There were almost 6,000 ethnic Russians who reported knowledge. There were over 1,000 ethnic Tatars who included themselves in that. And then there were some Armenians and some Chuvash and some Yakut Saha some Tuvans um, and some sort of miscellaneous other people. So it's starting to change. This is something that's starting to change in, in Russia and I think other parts of the former Soviet Union as well, but it's starting to like, the definitions are starting to loosen a little bit and more like non-Buryats can identify themselves as like having at least knowledge, if not like the Ranoyazik, mm-hmm. like at least knowledge of, of Buryat. But a lot of people who have pretty substantial knowledge don't identify themselves as such because they're like, no, no, of course, like I'm a Russian, like I don't speak Buryat. And then I'm like, well, you just understood everything that that person said. Do you at least mm-hmm. have really good passive competence? You at least have good passive knowledge of the language. Like you can at least understand what's being said, even if you don't feel like you can put together a sentence and you don't have active competence. There's a lot of people who, so many people who grow up hearing Buryat and other native languages for that matter too, but we're thinking of Buryat right now, right? Like they grow up hearing Buryat. It's a, what we would call in the U.S. a heritage language. They would say it's their maybe Radnoyazik because they're ethnically connected to it. And it's like their, it's the language of their Rod or the Rodina or something. But they wouldn't say that they're speakers of Buryat, that they have Znania of Buryat, even though they understand it really well. Like they've got good passive, have a lot of, a lot of friends, a lot of people who are in their 30s and 40s now who are in that kind of position where like they understand it really well, but they don't feel comfortable speaking. At first, when I was doing my research, I kind of doubted them on that. I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, you understand it really well. You could probably put together a sentence. Like, come on, let's do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but over time, I learned they're serious about it. Like when they say they can't speak, so many people say like, I understand it, but I can't speak. Or I understand it, but I can't read because I didn't learn it in school and I don't know the literary standard. I'm so glad you brought this up because it's like one of my main arguments in the book is that we really need to think about different kinds of knowing and different ways that people can claim language and own language and be speakers of languages without sort of falling into this trap of thinking that there's either speakers or there's not speakers. One of the things that you bring up in, across your works is the question of people asking Buryats, ethnic Buryats, why they don't speak their own language and the emotional baggage that comes with that. You touched on it a little bit, but could you unpack that a little bit more for us? This kind of conflation of language with identity, pride, et cetera, personhood, I guess, as well. Yeah, that's, I mean, whew, man, <laughs> that's the heart of the issue, right? It's like when people are arguing about language, I'm not talking just about Buryat right now, I'm talking about language in general. Like when people are arguing about language and which languages you should or shouldn't speak and whether someone speaks, lang- speaks a particular language well or not, or that they're upset about not speaking their language anymore, especially, then they're not really arguing about language. Like, no one really cares whether you know how to use a particular kind of noun or how you know how to make a verbal adverb. Like, that's not that's not really what's at stake, right? Katya is smiling. <laughs> she's, she's thinking like, yes, nobody really cares about that. But sometimes there's a, there's a sort of blind spot for linguists and people who care a lot about language because we just really dork out on that. 
<laughs> and so we think of that as the target of language revitalization, for example. We're like, well, of course, you need to learn how to do verb. You need to learn how to make these verbal adverbs. Or like, isn't it so interesting that these people don't know how to make, like form verbal adverbs anymore? Like, oh my gosh, that's a form of language attrition, you know? So we really focus in on that. But that's sort of missing the forest for the trees because the what people are really after and what they're really arguing about are social relations that are at stake in and indexed by a particular language, right? Or a particular ability. So when when you're arguing about who speaks Buryat really well, you're arguing about who can who's better at being Buryat and who gets to count as a member of this this ethno nation ultimately, right? So the members of this Buryat language sort of minority public are all the people who can speak and engage enough or read enough and understand enough to be called forth as a subjectivity and as like a, a group of people who can who can kind of be a, a, a kind of community almost. So there, that's a public and it doesn't quite overlap with the Boyat ethno-nation. So you see those kind of like gaps when somebody says something like, why can't you speak your own language? Like you see how frustrated they are that on the one hand, this should be a member. Maybe they, usually it's racialized. Usually somebody's looking um, at a, a, another speaker and thinking like, well, you look Boryat, so you bloody well ought to speak Boryat. <laughs> um, so they're thinking of a sort of conflation of and assuming a kind of conflation of linguistic ability with racial identity, with ethno-national belonging that doesn't quite it doesn't quite work out, right? So it's not socially satisfying to people because it's not a one-to-one correspondence. You know, we're still sort of like having this hangover from the Enlightenment <laughs> where, where we still sort of want this kind of, we, I mean, like humans, like a lot of, a lot of this conditioned by our, by our political and historical context, like in Europe and the United States and Russia, China for that matter too, like where we're like seeking a kind of one-to-one correspondence and this Herderian kind of ideal of having like one nation and one territory and one language and one people, which often becomes racialized, such that like we're looking for a kind of continuity and coterminous where they just don't exist. So, it, you know, it generates problems. And a lot of times the expression, why don't you know your own language is like yelled, right? <laughs> like it's, it's often angry. It's often like an expression that somebody where somebody is like, like a babushka is like angry with a younger person for not understanding what she's saying. Or a grandmother is like rugati, like she's, I was going to say rugati, but like chewing out her, um, her like granddaughter for not, I'm thinking of all feminine examples here, I guess, between or between women of different generations. That's telling too. And that's, that's not a coincidence. but. In any case, like the the kind of anger and frustration that's behind or resignation that's behind saying, why don't you know your own language is possible and happens because of this kind of expectation that's kind of unreasonable. Like it's not really reasonable to think that after 400 years of contact with Russian in which Russian would be, it really is like the code of political power and economic power, economic opportunity for kids. Like it's amazing that anybody speaks Borat, to be honest. In that sense, it's still a story about perseverance and unbelievable sort of reclamation against all odds, you know. But it's not, it's not quite fair to expect people to speak their own language. And what's behind that idea about like your own language, of course, is what we were just talking about, that your, your native language and this idea that you should have a, one particular native language that's tied to your ancestry and to your birth and, your, and also often your racialized identity within Russia is, is what makes it about ownership in a way, right? Like when you say like, why don't you speak your own svoy? Like your svoy yazik, like your own language. It's really implying that that there's one language that is going to be connected to you whether you like it or not. 
and that you have sort of responsibility for carrying it forward into the future, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And it's also very essentialist, you know, reducing someone's physiognomy or whatever you think their phenotype is like and saying, well, this means that you should speak said language. But can we talk a little bit about the intergenerational gaps and also intergenerational processes or traditions of passing down language? It's a really crucial question in so many cases of language shift and and language revitalization or reclamation. We often talk about it as the grandmother problem. So, well, actually, there's two two separate ways in which grandmothers get evoked all the time in discussions of language shift. One sense is that because there are often these intergenerational gaps where like the grandparents will have fairly good or be known as having, maybe they don't like who am I to say whether who has good knowledge or not? But like speakers think that the they agree that the grandparents' generation has maybe really authoritative knowledge of the native language. Then there's a generation that their kids who didn't learn it in school were forced into boarding schools. Maybe they were forced, maybe they just had such overwhelming political economic reasons to not learn their native language that they don't speak it. And then it's their kids, it's the grandchildren who get interested in reclamation or revitalization programs. And so that's often the grandchildren who are trying to learn from the grandparents. And that's sometimes really tragic because the by that point, it's often too late for the grandparents to, you know, frankly, to live long enough and to be in sort of social situations such that they can really pass on the language to their to their grandkids. But there's, so there's often this generational like sort of skip. Do people ever talk about this gap as being a lost generation? They yeah, do in the exactly. Sahara Republic. Yeah, okay. Right. So the lost generation is often this generation of people who are believed to have poorer knowledge, usually because of, again, like an education gap. Or in Russia, the gaps happened in the 1960s with really rapid industrialization when large numbers of people were being not not mostly forcibly, but were being were being moved around for labor purposes into and especially being urbanized like crazy. Urbanization was happening really, really rapidly. Languages like Buryat kind of understandably got kind of pushed aside because suddenly you had in Ulan Ude, for example, the capital of the Republic of Buryatia, suddenly there were lots of Ukrainians and lots of Armenians and Azerbaijanis and the lingua franca for everyone was Russian. So Buryat was not being maintained in the same way. And you also had large numbers of young Buryats moving from villages where primarily Buryat was spoken to cities. And so there was this big generation gap that happened right after the 1960s. And then there was another gap in the 90s because, or from the 1990s, just the devastation to local schools and the education system and the kind of chaos of the 1990s, economic chaos and educational chaos too of the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Plus in the 1990s, it was considered really nationalistic and anti-Russian to speak Buryat on the streets. And this is something that has been documented in the Sahara Republic as well, like that, that the 1990s was a time when something Janan Ferguson talks about in her really good book, Words Like Birds, that in the, in cities... It was considered really anti-national, or sorry, anti-Russian and nationalistic and rude to speak Saha in public life. And so that was a, yet another re- way that, that Saha, like a, the titular, what should be the titular and most important language, but, in, but also becomes the sorry, minoritized language, was pushed off the streets. Um, mm-hmm. And as she points out, like you don't, doesn't have to be illegal for people to feel a really strong norm against using the language too, right? So that's one way in which grandparents figure really large. So the way we think about grandmothers is like, oh my gosh, we're usually really dependent in language revitalization programs. Uh, we're usually really dependent on grandmothers, especially mm-hmm. and grandparents and elders to be the sources of authoritative knowledge after one of these gaps. 
they become the kind of like people that everybody documents as the target of language revitalization. So if you're going to go look for authentic good Buryat, what do you do? Well, college students in Ulanude organize these really interesting like dialect expeditions, pretty common across Russia, actually. So like local departments of like local languages will do these do this really interesting sort of dialectology where they bring students out into villages to talk to their own grandparents mostly and document their practices which is great i mean it's really good linguistic descriptive work and you've got like teams of people spreading out all over the place documenting documenting dialects but the, then the grandparents the grandmothers in particular become these like sources so in in Buryatia, it's really that effect of grandmothers is really exacerbated by a really strong ideology about men, especially senior men, needing to be respected and not shamed in public life. So the worst thing would be to humiliate a an elder Boryat man by like recording him speaking Boryat poorly. So mm-hmm. people avoid it. They, they just don't go, they don't ask men for it. And men avoid it too. Like I can't tell you how many times I've seen television reporters and radio reporters try to recruit senior Buryat men who just say like, because they look Buryat, because again, it's based, based on like phenotype usually, like they try to recruit them on a racial basis. And then the guy is just like, no, <laughs> like I'm not doing that. <laughs> no, it's not going to work out. So grandma and grandmothers don't mind chewing out. They won't chew out other men, but they will chew out all of the women. <laughs> Mm-hmm. around them you know so it's burden is on women but it's also women who get to sort of do some of the language shaming that ends up being really consequential and so is there a common practice of children who might typically live in cities living with their grandparents in the summer and picking up the Buryat language from their grandparents during that time yeah if I were going to do another project in Buryatia it would probably be on this it's not exactly child circulation. This has been studied in some other parts of the world. It's not for like really long periods of time, but it's for summers, as you say, right? So they take the advantage of the long summers and sometimes winter holidays too, but mostly the summers to send kids from the city out into villages. It's becoming more difficult as, uh, or at least I have the impression that it's becoming more difficult because urbanization is is increasingly stark. So there are just fewer elderly relatives in the villages to to go to, honestly. It's becoming more common to bring your elders to the city to to take care of them in the city as opposed to going out to them in the countryside. But that's a longstanding, that's like the main way that Buryat is acquired is through children. This is true in Mongolia too. Like one of the reasons that that there's so much, such a stark sort of difference between city practices and rural practices is that elders in the villages and so many kids in the city is that that's where the schools are. So that the a lot of families will have multiple homes that they're, you know, in, a, in an extended family kin, kinship network that they're traveling between, but the kids are largely in the, in the cities or in the, rayon, the district centers so that they can have access to good schools. And then they circulate back out in the summer to the, to the rural regions. I wonder if there's also kind of this phenomenon that I have observed, at least in my own village in the Sahara Republic, is that this kind, this common mode of intergenerational transmission, the children from the city to the villages in the summertime, is being drastically impacted by the introduction of cell phones in the villages, which yeah. were not a reality five, ten years ago. And so now you'll have little kids running around these villages and with their cell phones and speaking only in Russian. I, I've been seeing this this loss of this really important practice. And I wonder if if there would be parallels in Buryatia as well. 
And that's really fascinating because if you think about what a cell phone can do, it could work both ways. Like you could imagine more Buryat, for example, entering urban spaces through these cell phones, right? Like through the fact that you can can talk to people much more cheaply. Usually, usually cell phones are like cheaper than landlines, right? So on the one hand, you'd think like if you could talk to your grandmother more often or your aunts or whatever from your urban city apartment, you know, Mm -hmm. your kitchen, you would be able to insert the the rural language into urban spaces more readily and cheaply and frequently. But on the other hand, as you say, like then Russian is also available and prevalent. It's a really, it's a really interesting question. I mean, the reason I got interested in intergenerational transmission, especially is that I'm really interested in what happens over the life course, because this isn't something I touched on in the book because I was just observing it at the sort of tail end of my fieldwork and thinking in like 2012 and more recently and just the last few years, like via social media and thinking like, God, that'd be a really cool project. And it's got to be true elsewhere too. That a lot of my research participants that I've, you know, now that I've known them for like 15 years, like some of them are starting to say that they, they use Boyat more now than they did earlier, especially women, like that they have more circumstances within which they need to be speaking Boyat, that they feel more comfortable speaking Boyat, that they don't feel a complex anymore. Like they can say like, I can speak be as complex, I can speak without a complex and don't feel so like self-conscious about it. So part of that is the sort of psychology maybe of getting older and just not caring anymore. <laughs> like what, what, what people think of you, you know, mm-hmm. um, sort of relaxing into your, <laughs> into your seniority. What's fascinating about that is that we usually think of intergenerational transmission as like kind of one, a one-time acquisition. You know, has the language been passed from this nasitil, this like carrier of the language, who's a grandmother to her children? And has it been passed from their children or is it being passed straight from the grandmother to the grandchildren? But we think of it as like a one-time sort of point of acquisition when it sounds like it changes over the life course and that some of those women who do not consider themselves speakers are now actually using more Buryat. Like their speaker status is shifting over the course of their lives without them doing a lot of self-conscious intervention. What's interesting about that is that it suggests another way that suggests that like speakers, being a speaker isn't like an all or nothing thing. And it might, you might become taken as a more authoritative speaker and as a fuller speaker over the course of your life by virtue of having, I don't know, by virtue of having more context in which you use it, by virtue of loss of this complex. Like it's not clear to me exactly, but it's a, it's fast. It's really fascinating because it really pokes at a lot of our basic categories of understanding how language works. It's much more, this is much more in keeping with ideas about language socialization and how age is produced at different, at different stages of life. Thank you to Dr. Graber for joining us on this episode. As mentioned, she has a new book out and as part of Cornell Press's top 10 most viewed books this month special, you can get a copy of it for 40% off. You can find a link to the book and promo code in the episode description. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Bayertai hang bagti. Special shout out to Shergal, Batagarov, and Telecompania ATV for their Puria Dar Tu Let's Talk Puriat series. I used it to learn a little bit of Puriat for this episode. Take care, y'all. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.